Welcome everyone to Flyover Footy on the Big 550 KTRS. We I'm joined just with Matt Baker tonight, and I'm distracted. He's got that beautiful white warm-up jacket that we've been seeing in pictures from City. Goodness, it's great. We've already gotten some comments. I hope you're uh, watching us live on the stream, or maybe you can check it out on YouTube. Uh, those are two options if you'd like to see Matt's beautiful jacket tonight. But uh, otherwise... Thank you for joining us on the radio and in the podcast, perhaps. Matt, how's it going, man? Fantastic. I purposefully wore this as a plug for our YouTube channel. If nobody is interested or looking at that, they should be because we've been releasing some pretty good videos looking at Inside Soma House this week. We had some looks at Miguel Perez, League's Cup, but there's nothing like being back here with you on the podcast, that's for sure. It's feeling good, and we got a lot to talk about tonight. Last week, we did a bad job covering everything, so let's, hopefully we get through our list today. It's not quite as daunting, um, and I guess, you know what? Let's just lead right into it. We've had two preseason games uh, this week. All, we've gotten to watch two preseason games, which yes. makes me so incredibly happy. Thank you to whoever made that happen, whether it's our club, their club, MLS. Maybe it's just... Um, the uh, Coachella folks, who cares? I'm so glad I got to see these games and we have some idea of, of what's happening much better than last year. But there was a game on the third against LA Galaxy, the seventh against LAFC. So we got the LA boys ch- checked off the list there uh, in preseason. Uh, Matt, let's start with the Galaxy game, though. What did What did you see in the first half there? A lot of good stuff, a lot of exciting stuff. This was the first match in California, the pre-Coachella match. So it was it was coming in somewhat of a, a rainstorm. They had this Pineapple Express weather system, they called it out there, where just a mess of rain. So they worked through that. It was the pre-Coachella, so they were still going with two 45-minute halves. They started off with a pretty strong lineup, I thought. Roman Berkey and Nett. Anthony Markanik, left back, Tim Parker, Josh Yarrow, Tomas Taltland at right back. Chris Durkin and Tomas Ostrak were the central midfielders. Celio Pompeu, Indiana Vasilev, the wide attacking mids, Klaus and Sam up top. And I saw this, and my first thought is, well, this looks pretty much like a top starting 11. This could be the lineup that we roll with, hmm. with Leuven and Nielsen back in, because we know they're still gone from their green card process. So this was exciting to see. And... I was very impressed from that group by our midfield. I thought that Durkin and Ostrock as the six and the eight respectively were impressive. And and they were, we saw a little bit of this with Durkin and Kojima that we'll talk about against LAFC, but I really enjoyed seeing Tomas Ostrock in that eight role. I thought when he works centrally, he just seems like he's so much more open, so much more free, and he can see the entire field better. I, I really liked where his positioning was and his his back and forth movements with Durkin, they were cutting off a lot of the field. Durkin, we'll get to the goal in a minute, but I was impressed with his just overall performance. What did, what did you think from this first 11? Well, I think what stood out to most people in this is how incredibly good Totland is. Um, mm. I think he stood out to me as like a plus plus player, like better than average, better than the you know the the transfer price that we that we got him for I think um, as far as if you would compare him to other people who were bought for that price I think he's looking extremely good I think he's going to be key um, you know I even noticed it in this last game like it looked like Sam was holding up the ball just waiting for Totland to to go around him at certain points I think yeah. the guys know that he's not just a, a good defender but he's also going to be a very good attacker but you know the Ostrak thing was a surprise like you said. 
And I like I like him there too. I think he has wonderful awareness um, as a midfielder. Not, you know, he doesn't need to be on the wings because he can't see who's coming in behind him and around him at all times. I think he's very good uh, with the ball at his feet and with defenders coming in on his back or from any direction. And he's good at advancing the ball. I think that's what he's best at if it's not a counterattack. I think a counterattack is like where he thrives. Uh, but other than that, I think advancing the ball is something he's very good at. And um, that's a good place for him to be. I think it works for him as long as he can defend. And I didn't see any problems, did you? No, not at all. Not defending. And on Thomas Dolan, I was very impressed with his work with Klaus on and off the ball. Hmm. I thought the way we were positioning our strikers was very interesting because it was almost like Sam was holding the line and Klaus was a little bit of a false nine or an underneath second striker. And he was he was moving a lot more freely across the field. And I felt like they, at times both our central midfielders and our strikers were interchangeable in what their assignments were offensively and defensively. But when when Klaus and Totland were kind of playing off of each other on the right, allowing Totland to have some of those overlapping runs and ending up near the far end line, I thought he was very successful with what he was trying to do. And their ability to spread the field over there, I, I think this is just a half of what we're ultimately going to see when Nicholas Dewar is up to speed and we have that potential on the left side. Not that we'll do it at the same time, but it provides uh, a little bit of a mirror look in what we'll be capable of Whereas we didn't really see that a whole lot last year. It was either you spend the game going down the right side, you have a left here and there, but you knew where the attack was going to move through. Looking ahead, I see a lot more flexibility in what we're able to do holistically on both sides of the wings. Um, But Totlin defensively, just as much as that offensive capability and the overlapping runs with the strikers, he, he was fast in his ability to get back. The, tracking back, I thought that seeing Durkin and Ostrak in the midfield was important in how box-to-box they could be, but Totland was covering a ton of ground out there. If he's going to be the guy, if he's going to be the starting right back, which I firmly believe the spot's his to lose, then I think we're going to see a lot of a lot of that, a lot of the ability for him to move up the field and then track back with the central midfielders providing some of that cover as he gets back. He made he made a few impressive defensive stops where you had, uh, I think it was Josh Yarrow kind of getting closer to that right side and providing cover for Totland to get back. The spacing and the way they worked off of each other was very nice. It, it seemed like Totland was really ingraining himself already and as if he was so familiar with this system. And that was one of the things that I was really excited for him, too, is how quickly he seems to be getting the St. Louis City system. Yeah, and he's really good in tight places, tight spaces, just like you were kind of alluding to with with Klaus and him interchanging a lot. And and that's just something, um, maybe I'm jumping ahead, but, you know, Galaxy sat back a lot, especially at first before the goal came. And so that was nice practice. That's something that you and I have been just hammering uh, that what what will we do when we have teams that do that? to St. Louis. And I think Totland and Klaus could be really good at that kind of um, problem is unlocking that kind of a problem. Not that St. City did that in this game. You know, the goal came and it became not a problem anymore in the what? 20 something minute. And, uh, and so, you know, the goal wasn't like we broke them down. It was, um, I don't know. It's the way that we can see city scoring a lot of games and winning them, no matter who they play against. But it wasn't breaking down a bunker defense, um, even though that we had that opportunity. But it was nice to see them attempting it. There were some different things like 
the, the line of demarcation, it seemed like they were starting deeper and staying deeper until that trigger really hit. Mm-hmm. And, they, you know, it seemed like they were waiting for something really specific. And it felt like something that might happen against a team that wants to bunker. I don't know what you thought, though. Well, I, I liked how we were a little bit more willing to possess the ball. You, you saw flashes of that where you heard yeah. about it in the game previously against um, that we played last week against Nashville. You heard that you know we were a little more possessive. But with this one, you could really see Chris Durkin in particular. I saw a few times where instead of immediately looking up and trying to send the ball deep like we had been last year and you're constantly looking upfield, there was an ability to pull it back pass it back to your center mids or your center center backs and work the ball around the field. They're, they're quick with doing that. They didn't want to necessarily possess the ball too much, but if option A wasn't there, they wasn't going to, they weren't forcing it. And that was exciting to see the fact that they were willing to pull back, willing to relook at the field and try a different approach. And I think that helps in breaking down a low block because you're drawing the team out. You're drawing the defense out and making them go after different players across the field. And if you can spread the ball out, if you can be a little more intentional with working the ball through against a low block like that, you're going to have a lot more success. And drawing fouls, you know, like that, I think that's how we ended up with that free kick that ended in, yeah. in a Durkin goal. I mean, that that's a thing. But you and I are, are big on wanting to see actual breaking down with uh, the ball at their feet um, through the, the play. Um you know, we'd like to see more of that good practice in this game. So that was nice to see. Um, last thing about uh, the first half was you mentioned Klaus dropping in, and it's been funny to see. You know, I'm curious when Leuven comes back whether Klaus is going to continue to drop that deep. I think he will to some extent. Um, but it was really funny in the next game. I, I saw Klaus dropping in, and it was like him and AZ were right next to each other, right by the center backs. I thought that was pretty funny yeah. at, at one moment. I'm not sure that's something that will keep going. Uh, but, you know, clearly those guys are wanting to get on the ball and be part of that uh, that play, trying to break down defenses. You know, the other thing that I really was impressed with in that first half was how we scored the goal. I, noticed, I made note of this a second time against LAFC, but – Last year, if you go back and look at the amount of goals that we scored off set pieces, I don't know that you'll find maybe more than one or two, if that, where we scored a goal off a rebound, where the ball was back in play, and we recovered, and we immediately were able to put one in net. And that happened with Chris Durkin. It happened with Kyle Hebert against LAFC. But Chris Durkin's was particularly impressive because we saw the ability to score on a dime from outside the box accurately and with pace. That was incredible, and the ability for Durkin to be kind of one of those go-to players backing up a little bit because we know St. Louis is clinical with their set-piece formations. You can have Durkin, a guy with almost like Akeel Watts was a few times with the 2022 City 2 team, if you remember that. He had a few of those goals from range as the midfielder. Durkin with that accuracy, when you have, in that case, it was Indiana Vasilev taking the set-piece. You presume Eddie Leuven's going to be that guy in the future, but... Durkin, if he's on the field, not taking a set piece and being out there, able to provide that firepower deep, that's a that's a huge asset that we didn't really have much of a look last year in. Yeah, and, and just to like say again that what I was expecting, I thought he was exactly that, that he's, you know, a better defender than our average midfielders, central midfielders, but he's also a better attacker than say Blom. You know, clearly we can see that he's got some offensive power firepower uh, to contribute going forward. But I think what I didn't quite expect, because he is still a younger player, even though he has a lot of experience, is he looked very calm. And, you know, under pressure, dropping in to get the ball from the center backs if we were going to play out of the back. 
if he was under pressure with his back to, um, you know, facing our own goal, he was calm. He was able to get the ball out. Um, it wasn't frantic in any way. He wasn't trying to turn out of pressure. He was able to pass out and move. And it, I don't know. It was just a really senior looking player out there in a 23 year old and um, defensively stout. Um, and obviously, again, he, he, he contributed a goal in that one, which was nice to see. So he's going to be, I think, really one of my favorite players this year. And I think he's going to be slightly overlooked because he's not flashy in how he does it. And I wonder how, because Blome a couple weeks ago when I talked to him said that Durkin and him play the same position. But to your point there, it really doesn't seem like they treat it as the same position. Yeah, their assignment may, might be the six, but somewhat with Ostrak and definitely with Kojima in the second game, I saw a lot of Durkin's penchant to move up the field. He would initiate some of these presses where the ball would be, you would have your attackers spread out a little bit wide, um, all four of them. And then Durkin would just charge up the midfield, find the hole, the number six, who's the pivot for the other team. And that would be their initiation of the press. And that provides a really interesting thing that St. Louis didn't do a lot last year either, which is initiating a press from the midfield where you're spreading out the back line wide. Your attackers are almost man marking in the in your offensive zone. And then as the, the opponent tries to play the ball through the midfield, your number six, your number eight, moves up and takes away that space. Mm. And if St. Louis can do that, I think that adds another dimension to their press that was so successful last year. I uh, completely agree. Uh, lastly, the wingers, Celio India. I think it's Celio Pompey that got that foul for the free kick, if I'm not mistaken, um, uh, that got the goal. But um, Indy, I love in this 4-2-2-2. Two, 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 mm-hmm. I thought that's what you agreed, that that's what it was. Um, Indy on the right side cutting in, just lots of half spaces to work with. And, you know, I really enjoyed him at the 10, the few games he got to play uh, the 10 position last year. And it just feels a little bit like that. I, I like him up high. Obviously, he can play center mid. I'm interested to see if Ostrak nails down that center mid role and Indy gets to stay up high. Um, either way, I liked him there. Um, I thought, and especially, I mean, they're just training videos, but I feel like in training videos, he's looking like he's up high more often yeah. in the way that he's playing in tight spaces. So I don't know. I liked that. Well, that's kind of his natural position. Coming into the season last year, he only dropped back to central midfield to cover for Blome and to provide a little bit of depth because we needed him in that position. His He had never played the six before last year, so he was asked to do that by Carnell, and he did it well. He spent some time, a decent amount of time last year doing it until we needed to bring him back up top. Now that we have that central midfield depth, it's exciting to see Indiana Vasilev back to where he's used to, back to his home in the attacking mid, and I think... Celio Pompeu has a little bit more flexibility, maybe, moving from the left to the right. In the second game, he swapped with Thor a little bit, and we saw him on the right just as much as we did on the left. But with if Celio Pompeu and Indiana Vasilev are our wide mids, having Indiana there on the right-hand side, I could, I could live with that all day, every day. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder what's going to happen when Rasmus Alm comes back, and you might presume that Alm would take that spot on the right, and Indy would be... Good point. It, yeah, it just depends on, I mean, fitness. It depends on form. You never know if somebody's going to come back in this system and just be able to take their spot back. Mm-hmm. We saw multiple times last year that that was just not the case. So the better Indiana performs in the at the right mid-roll, uh, the more opportunity he might have, and all might just have to earn his spot back. But I agree with you that he's showing a lot of playmaking abilities. You know, we don't need or really use a traditional number 10 in this style when you're when you're counterattacking is your main form of offense. It's just not necessary to have a playmaker. 
and what Indy does in this role, both pressing and his ability to move the ball up the field quickly and precisely and just create space himself, that is exactly what we need. Absolutely. Uh, Matt, why don't you uh, talk about the second half uh, lineup as well? In our notes, I have the second half as the AZ show. <laughs> it's AZ Jackson and Nuke Thorson. They they were effective playing off each other. AZ had numerous opportunities. He, he was just so fun to watch with the ball. And... I, to me, there were two highlights of the second half. One of them was the dual yellow card that AZ and John Nelson got into once John Nelson entered the game and the John mm-hmm. Nelson revenge game began. That's right. And it clearly went our way. But <laughs> so that was, I mean, that was exciting to see. AZ made a move on the left side. Um, John Nelson was, was in pursuit and AZ was winning that battle. And then AZ kind of just got a little heated there and earned himself a yellow card. But AZ had the last laugh. And when AZ, with his pressing on John Nelson to create the turnover, that did exactly what I want to see so many more times this year. When AZ presses, he creates a turnover. You have two or three guys from the defense at this point trying mm-hmm. to take the ball back. That creates the space that Nukeby Thorson lives in, that he thrives in. And you saw that exact thing happen, where Thorson cut across the middle. He received the ball in the box from AZ after AZ drew those defenders, including John Nelson, to him, slid the ball through, and Nukeby Thorson finished. Nukeby Thorson has finished a couple times this uh, this spring now, and it, or this winter. It's exciting to see his ability to finish. It's exciting to see AZ do exactly the AZ things that we've come to know and love, uh, causing chaos both on the defensive side to take the ball back and then once he has the ball he can do some really impressive things with it yeah and and to be honest him being able to finish the play i think is is that step that we really needed him to take because if he wanted to move to the next level if he needs to move to europe if we want him to play for the men's national team um that's what he needed was to finish better or to get that assist and this was it and it made me wonder that it, it may not just be that AZ is really hot and in form from that uh, January camp. Um, it may not be just that. It may be that he needs a player like Thorson, which, you know, he, Thorson made that perfect run at the perfect time right into that space. But credit to AZ for nailing it, getting it on target. How many times do we see him dribble and dribble, get around, get around, get around a guy? and then make a pass that's intercepted and, and used as a counterattack. So um, th- hopefully well, we see a lot more to, of this. Credit, too, to Nukeby Thorson because he he that was kind of what he was trying to do this entire game against the Galaxy yeah. and on into LAFC. He was that roaming second striker where he was just trying to create space for himself. That was what, and be the outlet for somebody else who had the ball. And it's different when you have kind of a stationary person, whether it's a hold-up striker that possesses the ball and then you're trying to play around them versus an attacking creative midfielder who can move all across the field, take the ball back and possess it as he needs to, to draw defenders. And then that enables space for Nuke Thorson. Like it's, it's different when you have that type of a player creating and, and facilitating for Nuke versus if you have just a hold up striker, do the same. He can be successful and we've seen him in highlights be successful, but I wonder if that's part of this game where if, if you see a lineup that might consist of Thorson, Klaus, Sam and AZ, for instance, then you might see a lot of Thorson just moving all across the field in that final third if AZ has the ball. Yep, and he did it tons in Belgium, and he got so much, he's had so much success with that, just like moving around, finding space, and then being able to finish the pass. Again, is like half the problem. I think people are going to be uh, like 
bothered by Thoris, and I think we're going to get a lot of complaints because he's not as active and crazy looking as the rest of our attackers. He's very, he's a lot more calm. I mean, he's athletic. He can press really well, but he attacks in a very sneaky, quick way. He's cerebral. Yeah. He's very cerebral in in what he chooses to do. Like on defense, I praise a lot of our players like Klaus, Nico Giochini last year for being very intentional with their push pressing. Like they had to wait for the right opportunity. And that really seems like Nukvi's mo on the offensive side sometimes too is he he might just be out there he's he's like the the randy orton if you know wwe he's just kind of the viper just waiting to strike and then all of a sudden he sees the right opportunity and boom he's there yeah that's a really much better way to put that i love that um anyway i'm, I'm looking forward to that that was exactly the kind of thorson goal i've been calling for and thinking he might get and it felt good to see it happen in a preseason game one thing too it was tight you know like that it's like it could be one of the prettier goals we see in preseason Um, one thing too is without getting two two rose-colored glasses here um bilbo swaggins in the chat does mention i thought az was trying to do too much sometimes it worked out in the end and this is the knife's edge that we're going to be playing with a lot this year is and you've mentioned it a lot phil is az does get a little jumpy at times and with experience with age with just more time in the system he'll get better at it and he'll he'll make better decisions and i think we're seeing those better decisions already in the preseason but there will be some of those times where he does try to do a little too much himself and that's where you really have to rely on some of the other players to be able to take some of that load for az to know for a fact that he does not have to create all of the offense himself and he can be a facilitator just as much as he can be uh, a, a finisher and a do it himself. That's key for him to be able to trust his teammates to be finding themselves in open space so he doesn't have to do too much too many times. Absolutely. Did you have these these tweets up? Did you want to read any of these off about this game? Yeah, I thought um, because I put this out there on X that I, I wanted to see kind of people's thoughts from this first game. And one of the one of the feedback from the first game, and it, it really went into the second game as well. Um, Jose Kojima, can we talk a little bit about mm-hmm. Jose Kojima? I know we're going to talk about him against LAFC, but this was our first opportunity to see Kojima, and he impressed a lot of people. That there were notes on Kojima, there were notes on AZ, and I thought that he had a really good debut for St. Louis City. He was he, he did exactly what we wanted him to do without expecting too much. Um, one of the encouraging signs that Steve Davies had noted was the second half performance of Jose Kojima. Maybe he'll play a little more significant role than simply turning out for city two this year. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I, I don't think he's anywhere near as good as he's going to be, but it was such a good start. I was, I was surprised because I was expecting him to struggle. He kind of said he was struggling in preseason or he said he wasn't up to the level, but he's learning. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, Chris Gebhardt says, talk about cerebral. You see him reading the game, right? And it's, yes. you can see him looking ahead, what's going to happen. And um, he was in the right places at the right time. Matt, you mentioned spacing is one of your favorite oh. things about him being in the right position. And I totally... His intelligence. Yeah, totally agree. I would say the only little bit of cold water I'll throw on there is while he was much better than I expected him to be, he's still, like, I agree with him. He's not up at the level you can tell he has way less time on the ball than he's used to in college like obviously right but i think it's really encouraging that he started at such a high floor 
And I think the ceiling, especially for as long as we're going to have him here, it's going to be pretty high. And I look forward to even like what he's going to be in, in like halfway through the season. And he may be ready for the first team consistently, right? Absolutely. And th- that brings up a couple of the other things. Um, STL City Italian had noted there's no big drop off from each lineup. We saw in that game Agreed. 45 minute halves. That's huge. Seemed like we're more prepared than the Galaxy. It's going to be a fun year to watch this team, even if we don't have a super elite player. But improving overall, raising that floor is going to be key. And then Yerba underscore coffee says Blom v. Durkin. It's the preseason battle to watch. Mm. Durkin with the goal of that fight. Blom had some great moments on the ball in pressure. Nice outlet passes, both showing the potential. Very excited for that position. Absolutely agree. Uh, we still need a difference maker. This is River City Ramble. We still need a difference maker to push us past last season's mm-hmm. ceiling. Is that player somewhere on the current roster, or will he come during the summer window? I've been dwelling on this thought a lot, and part of me thinks you know there were a lot of things. Maybe part of the whole not being able to break down uh, defenses in certain games when we have the ball. Maybe it was just that we didn't have the fullbacks we needed for a full season. You know, like just bringing in two really good fullbacks may make this system work like it was meant to work. Like maybe it never quite hit that fifth gear that it needed to hit at the end of the season when people started figuring us out. Maybe it'll be as simple as that. Um, maybe it'll be someone stepping up um, who's who's better. Like we were just talking about, maybe Thorson took what AZ's been lacking and just you know, like plugged a hole and they figured it out in this game. Like Something like that could happen. But do we need another difference maker? By the end of the season, we might be absolutely agreeing with this. And uh, we've talked about it. You know, Just thinking about the things we said at the end of this last season, like, yeah, that's that's what we felt we needed. Yeah, and that brings some comments about the, the winger position, people feeling like we need a difference maker at the winger. I like our conversation we just had about Thorson's potential, Indiana Vasilev, Rasmus Alm is still yet to come back. I think the the ability is there at a high level. And Salio too, yes, absolutely. Chris Gephardt mentioned Salio. And I think, I, for some reason, I keep forgetting Salio. I keep thinking of him as a second striker, a little higher up the field. But as a wide left mid or wide right mid, I think Salio, Thor, Alm, and Indiana Vasilev, they're going to shock a lot of people around the league. Mark Krigsey says Brendan McSorley's got that fight in him. Uh, what do you think of the the strikers, the younger strikers? Well, do we want to use this as a chance to pivot to the LAFC game? Because sure. those two strikers earned themselves a start in this one. And McSorley and Glover, not quite the all-star tandem yet, but that does provide an interesting look under as, as a forward combination to some of the other wingers that we saw. In the first game, it was McSorley and Glover ahead of AZ and Thor. And so all of the all the accolades that we're saying about AZ and Thor, you have to kind of intrinsically realize that McSorley and Glover are on the field doing what they need to do to either draw defenders, to create space, to look dangerous that allows them to move. If you had just two unassuming strikers who didn't draw any kind of attention, AZ and Thor wouldn't have been able to do what they did. I kind of like Brendan McSorley in this hold-up striker role that he has going on here. And I think I, I he's obviously not there yet. I don't know if he's going to be with City to start the season. But Brendan McSorley and Caden Glover would make an exciting City 2 combination to start the year, I would say. And ultimately, both. We know Glover has a long-term outlet with City. And I think McSorley is showing a lot of promise, too. And in the second game against LAFC, earning the start with, again, having Salio Pompeu this time with Thorson right behind them, um, they were able to do some interesting things too. And we didn't quite 
have that uh, run of play goal from them, from Thorson, for instance. But I liked what I like what the forwards were able to do in some of their pressing. They didn't have a whole lot of offensive firepower in either game, I think. But you could see them getting it. You could see them uh, understanding what their roles were and, and doing a good job of causing frustration for the other teams, both LAFC and LA Galaxy. Yeah, I think you nailed it. it. It reminds me of when you said that they perhaps enabled the wingers to do what they did in this one. It reminds me of when uh, Lutz was kind of calming us down about Klaus when Klaus came in. He was like, even if Klaus doesn't score a lot of goals, like he will be the guy leading the line and enabling others. So um, that's an interesting thing. Obviously, we got a lot more than that in Klaus. Uh, but, you know, that's a good thought with McSorley and Glover. I just enjoyed... Um, while they look really similar when you're not zoomed in, you kind of see the mop hair and a similar body style between him and Glover. I had a hard time telling them apart outside of their numbers. Um, their style is totally different. They complement each other very nicely. So I, mm-hmm. if they play a lot in City 2 together, I, that would be a lot of fun to watch. Um, but, you know, McSorley, definitely uh, more of a physical player. He's got that fight in him, like like Kyle said. or Yeah, I think Kyle said. And, um, you know, he has these tricks that he's used to using that, you know, some of them worked pretty well. Obviously, the finishing isn't quite there. That that step he needs to take to get around defenders isn't quite there, but he's just now starting. Uh, Glover, I just love it. Glover's interplay, and he's got really soft feet for a striker, yeah. and it's a lot of fun to watch him. I've seen it even more in training. Like, Boy, he can really combine with the best of them out there when he's playing up top. So those two, they do well together. I ex- I'm excited about them uh, developing into something better. I think this is just the beginning for them as well. Yeah, the rest of the starting 11 against that LAFC game was basically the second half of Galaxy. They they flopped, and they got to go a little over 60 minutes. You had Anthony Markanik, Kyle Hebert, Michael Vensel, Jake Nerwinski, Chris Durkin and Kojima, and then Thor Pompeu. This, the midfield again, because Leuven and Nilsson were again gone. They haven't returned yet from getting their green cards. So you had uh, Chris Durkin, and you had Jose Kojima. Tomas Ostrak was the only player not to play. He was held out due to tightness in his hamstring. And so this is the midfield. This is, you got to see a little bit of our, our wings try to move the ball forward in what Jake Nerwinski can offer. A little reminder of him because he's still there. And I, again, have to shout out the midfield. Like, I can't say enough about how impressed I was with Durkin and Kojima because of the caliber of team they were going against. LAFC had their first choice, essentially, lineup in that first half. You had Denny Bawanga. You had... Uh, Bogu's out there. You had Timothy Tillman. You had uh, Ilya Sanchez. A lot of their main players were still in there. And so to see Kojima go up in particular, Kojima and Durkin, against that midfield, see what they could do against Ilya Sanchez, that was impressive. And I thought they both played well off of each other. And this one in particular, I kind of alluded to it with Durkin and Ostrak, but to see them interchange the six and the eight, who's, who stays back, who moves up a little bit, at first, I thought it was going to be just Kojima that stayed back. But fairly often, Kojima, they almost seemed to have a connection or a communication that was really, really working well. You could see a lot in some of the the, specific, the, the zoom-ins to Jose Kojima. He was talking all the time mm-hmm. to his teammates. He was really either, whether it was telling people what to do, understanding assignments, you could see that he was just so involved with his teammates. He wanted to absorb what to do, when to do it, and where to do it. And and he was getting that instruction because his positioning and his spacing was working so well. The midfield was a wasteland 
for the large part. And it was one of the reasons why Denny Bowanga was the only player that they were able to run their offense through out on the left wing of theirs. Not just because they didn't have anybody in the central to move the ball through, but it was because we were taking a huge chunk of the field away from them and they had to move the ball down their wings at the primary form of progression. Yeah, it's unusual for us to have two players similar enough that it's like an actual pivot. You know, usually we have a guy that's more of a six and one that's more of an eight. In this one, they were, I love, I love that you saw that too, that they were just seesawing back and forth and moving constantly. I love that. Yeah, that was a lot of fun to watch. Those two, I guess they're actually pretty similar players so far. Um, I don't know if it'll always be that way, but that was a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, and the goal itself, I mean, that we have to spend some time talking about that because Kyle Hebert, of all players, <laughs> blowing a ball past Hugo Loris, the World Cup former Spurs player. I mean, this is this is hilarious in the preseason. There's no other way to describe it because when you have when you're able to do that to such a vaunted goalkeeper coming into the league and their LAFC is now trying to have their own Roman Berkey coming in and <laughs> and shocking the league. Feels like and it. he is caught flat-footed on a Kyle Hebert rebound off of a free kick. Another goal off a free kick where this reminded me of watching them play soccer tennis where the ball bounces once and he's able to do whatever he needs to do with that ball. In this case, finding net for what ended up being the game-winning goal. Yeah, I mean, he looked like a striker out there with the the touch and turn, the touch, spin and shoot. It was so nice. Um, I wonder if I bet I wonder if we talked to him, if we were like, if you could do that 10 times, how many times would you pull it off? Uh, it, it makes you wonder. But he might say I do it all the time. He's got great. He's, feet. The, he's the analytical mind. He'd probably pull out percentage points and the <laughs> odds of where that shot was. He would have his own XG already known. Yeah, he'd do the math in his head. Um Love it. Anything else with this? Oh, uh, I want to say um, Berkey's save uh, from Buanga's amazing shot oh. was incredible. So awesome to see him like clearly fresh and at the at the top of his game. Pretty much, it looks like already. Um, and then my other favorite play from the defense in this was when early in the game, it was right after that save. Vensel had to track back and do a recovery tackle and you know it, it was zoomed out so maybe the ref was being nice and let him get away with it but if that was clean or even mostly clean it was an incredible tackle from Vensel um and the kind of thing you like to see from uh, a pressing team center backs because yeah. they're exposed a lot that's the kind of thing that you like to see you know Vensel might have saved a goal there with that. I would give him credit for it because of the call against Jake Nerwinski, which was, it was close, but it was, it was definitely enough to deserve a foul uh, on Denny Bowanga in the box. And so since they didn't call it on Wenzel, I tend to give him the benefit of the doubt. And I, Wenzel deserves a little bit of credit here too, just in general yeah. for essentially playing as if he was a part of this team the entire time he's contracted the city to he played all of City 2 last year. That's where he'll be to start the year. But he's not just along for the ride here in preseason to be a body while Joachim Nilsson's out. He's holding his own. He's succeeding against this top LAFC team, the first team. And so that in and of itself is a shining light for what we can expect in the future from him. Yeah, like after I what I've seen from Vensel, I think it's totally possible that you know, once, you know, Parker and Nilsson 
retire. You know, let's hope we get several years from those guys. But, you know, those guys are top center backs right now. And mm-hmm. let's say they retire in the next couple of years. I think Fensel may jump straight to taking their place. I, mean, I think he's going to be that good in a couple of years, if not, you know. I, I would love for Parker to play for five, six, seven more years. Same for Nelson. But um, if, you know, if Fensel's, I think he could be ready in two or three years. That's I should have just said that instead of talking about those guys retiring. But um, anything else from the first half, Matt? No, not I'm ready really. For the second after, half. Yeah, after that Denny Bawanga uh, PK miss where he was called for a double touch. Also weird, right? Bizarre. Yeah, that, yeah, we never see that. No, very bizarre. I didn't realize it was a double touch. I was trying to figure out what happened the whole time. I, I saw it called that a couple on Twitter from people who were there. Apparently okay. they, which also speaks to something. Um, this happened in the Galaxy game, I think, where a, a, the MLS center ref, actually the camera went to them so they could announce the call in the field. That's right. But they didn't announce the reason, like the explanation. <laughs> they just said after review uh, and, and said what the end of the result was. But they didn't say why. And I think mm. that's a huge miss. If that's what we're going to get from this more transparent in-stadium VAR, it's not enough. Interesting. We're going to talk about uh, goalkeeper, new goalkeeper rules today, actually, a little bit maybe if we get to it. Um, so that one maybe not handled perfectly quite yet. Um, yeah. but at least MLS's VAR seems to be a little bit better than, than some other leagues. Uh, but the second half saw Locker and Lund come in for Glover and Berkey respectively. You're going to have to carry the load on this one. I watched it, but I could not focus. My kids were being insane. Where can you tell me where Locker, how did this end up looking on the field as far as the, the formation? Uh, kind of looked like a four-two-three-one a little bit, okay. where you had McSorley as your holding striker, Locker playing underneath. Um, I, it didn't last long enough to get a really good sense of where he would. He was kind of breaking out. Um, he was only on the field for eighteen minutes okay. until they made the line change. But yeah, midfield is where he ended up. Um, and having having Glover go out, I think makes sense. They're not looking necessarily to stretch him out for, I would assume, City to start the year. I don't know if Glover is... I don't know what the plan on Glover is in general, if he's going to start the year with City 2, if he's going to make game day roster as the third striker. I think the health of Rasmus Alm, the effectiveness of guys like Nick Vithoris and Celio Pompeu to be a second striker is going to greatly impact that. But Glover coming out when he did tells me they're more being cautious with his young legs. Hmm. And, and Locker, having him just enter the game at all was fun to see, seeing him slide in the midfield and and get some run out because he's the first academy player. I mean, this was his first time seeing minutes with City. Yeah. Um, he's still technically with the academy. Now he's signed for City 2, but before he sees any minutes with City 2, he gets some minutes, albeit preseason, with the big club. That's pretty cool. Sure is. Um, and they've been singing his praises, too, about how well he's been doing in preseason. So that's nice to see. Um, yep. 63rd minute, another line change, right, Matt? <laughs> First opportunity to see Nicholas Dewar. Yes. Yeah, you almost caught me there. Sorry about that. <laughs> that was the highlight, although highlight in concept. You know, I, we didn't, I didn't see a whole lot of excitement from this group. Um, their LAFC didn't really seem to be... Uh, I mean, their reserves were on the field. It wasn't anything noteworthy, uh, at least that I saw. I saw some Agreed. some chances again from AZ, but you know, I didn't make a whole lot. This wasn't anything to write home about or spend a whole lot of time other than seeing Nicholas Dewar on the field, which allows you to make a little bit of a connection into what's in his future. Nicholas Dewar seeing 
um, upwards of what was it 27 minutes that means he's ready for progression and so if he was no issues with this maybe against new york red bulls we're getting ready to look at maybe he goes 45 uh, I, I don't know that i'd look for him to go more than 45 but that enables him to start or come in at half really up in the air i was thinking the same thing um this was a bit of a i think i can remember some moments from sam it looked like az was frustrated and, and shooting a lot i don't know if i'm confusing friendlies but it felt like a mm-hmm. bit of a it wasn't as much time but it wasn't a lot going on in this Maybe it's one of those things where we saw a few times last year when Carnell was more prone to make these wholesale line changes, three, four, five players, not five players, three or four players at once or within a span of five minutes or so. At this time in the game, somewhere between 60 and 75, it's difficult to make that adjustment when you have so many new players on the field and kind of gel for a little bit. Um, I, it would have been nice to see them start off quickly that cause we're going to need to see this team start off quickly, fairly consistently, mm. but you know, end of the day, it's them. It's the first team coming in for just to keep their legs fresh when the, to me, this game against LAFC, the focus was to stretch out the legs of the players in the first half that, that, that piece is going to lead directly into New York Red Bulls where I would expect to see the opposite because you're needing to stretch out every single one of these players to get to what Carnell said a couple of weeks ago, you get them to 75, you know, they can go 90. And so that's the goal of preseason is to get everybody up to 75. So you can start to interchange players and lineups in these four games in two weeks to start the season. Yeah. And Carnell's quote, I'm just going to read it if you don't mind, Matt, because yeah, it speaks it. right to that. It was nice. I'm never too high on any result, but I felt there was a good connection with the group, good energy, nice intensity from both groups that we put out on the field that it comes out in our favor. Not a big incentive for us. The incentive is to get small things right. I thought we didn't give up a ton again, kept our defensive shape and that allowed us to get a couple of good chances and we could have snuck one or two more in at the other end. Um, but yeah, it definitely feels like focusing on the legs, getting the minutes up. I mean, CCC is right around the corner. I mean, and that's zero to a hundred faster than, than usual, I guess is what we're looking at here. What did you think about the, the connection of the lines? I, I saw Carnell made that there was a good connection with the group. One of the things that I noticed, especially in the first half with, Durkin and Kojima is the midfield's ability to connect those lines. When you have a group that presses as much as we do and you're needing to stretch the field on counterattacks, I think that's one of the biggest keys that doesn't get said enough is how can the midfield connect the lines appropriately? Hmm. Whether it's tracking back on defense and plugging up some of those holes that we had seen last year, especially on the wings, or whether it's pressing high and causing some of the disruption that I mentioned Durkin did against the LA Galaxy in in the first game. I know your opinion on this. I think you should elaborate on that, Matt. I think you should. <laughs> Maybe I will. I, 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 do you think that Bloman Watts was made that harder? Because mm-hmm. I do. I, and even looking at, I'm going to soften it because. Um, Please do. Yeah. Well, I, I believe this. Too. I really do. I'm not just saying this, but you know, the skills that Blome and Watts bring is not that connectivity. It's not what you think of as far as like no. constant movement. What we said about Durkin and Kijima, like I, I think Blome and Watts aren't going to be stunners at that, but they are going to have a nice defensive midfield for the most part. They're going to be more of a shutdown combo, I think, than anything else. Um, Watts is going to 
move the ball forward, yeah. but it's not going to be, you know, bam, 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 you know, and even Watts could have been held back perhaps by, by Blom's movement on the offensive side. Um, that's just my opinion. I don't know what you thought though. I thought they chased the ball a little too much. Okay. And I, I felt like Kojima and Dirk and were a little more proactive. They were putting themselves. Thank you. They were expecting where the ball would go. They could anticipate it a little better. And, and that's, I think, that leads to everything that comes. If you can anticipate when the ball's going to be played down the wing, when you need to start your run covering defensively, when you can push high, some of those early push points that I mentioned Durkin has because he anticipated, okay, my forwards, my wings, they're covering these. Ilya Sanchez right there in the middle. I can take him because he's going to get the ball. And he moves up before Sanchez receives the ball. That's some of those things that I noticed with Dirk and Kojima that I didn't necessarily see in Blome and Watts. Yeah, and Tolan wasn't on fire in this one, and I think it was pretty clear that Dur had just gotten there. You know what I mean? Like, he was yeah. just putting in a shift, getting through the game, getting uh, incorporated still. So, yeah. I don't know. Again, a bit of a nondescript 30 minutes or so. Um, I'm not taking too much from this. Uh, I think it's more just working their legs in and, and getting all the players through uh, the right amount of minutes in the game. And that just mean, means that there's different weird things about each lineup just to get everybody in there. Um, Leuven and Nilsson did not play, not back from their green card process, but they're on their way back. Has that been announced or not yet? It was supposed to be they, about a week. Yeah, they should be back. It, they, it hasn't been announced that they are back, but Carnell's postgame comments were more of the longer they stay out, the less likely is they'll play against New York, which makes it seem like... It was either yesterday, today, or tomorrow, as we record this on Thursday, that they might come back. So if we don't see them against New York on Saturday, February 10th, nothing against them. There's nothing to read into it. They just were a little delayed in getting back. Very cool. Let's preview the Red Bull New York game uh, that you just mentioned, February 10th. Today is the 8th, so that's going to happen on Saturday. Um, we get to see this one, too. Excited about that. We do. What, what do you What do you have? What do you see for this one, Matt? I see, like I alluded to, I think we're going with our perceived first choice lineup to start the game. This is the game I would look to to stretch out Klaus, Sam, Indy, AZ, Blome, Durkin or Kojima, Tomas Totlin, Josh Yarrow, Tim Parker, and Nicholas Dewar. I mentioned I'm not sure if Nicholas Dewar is going to be starting, but I would expect him to be able to go 45. So whichever group Carnell decides to put him with. And I, I assume Leuven and Nilsson are not going to go 60. So if they're back, maybe they both start and then we sit Josh Yarrow or Dirk and, and or Kojima. But I, I'm excited to see this lineup get a run out. And I'm excited to see them against a New York team that is very similar in style to them. We didn't get to see this last year. This is one of the games that I've been looking forward to. I wish we could see it in the regular season versus preseason. Unfortunately, we play the other New York team in the regular season. This is our chance to see what a St. Louis style press and a St. Louis city style mm -hmm. of play matches up against New York. And it's Carnell's return against his former team and Tim Parker. Uh, there's a lot to like about some of the intangibles of this. Yeah. The whole don't call it energy drink soccer. It's different. Yes. Well, now we get to see, right? We get to see the difference between the two. So be looking out for that. Matt, I have not been watching the time, so I apologize. We probably need to cut it off here. Would you like to give... One last thought about this New York game or anything else before we cut out. 
I think it's going to be a fun matchup. That's that's all I have about New York. We get to watch it. And if you're listening to us on the Big 550 KTRS, tune into our podcast. We're going to go deep into the CONCACAF Champions Cup. We'll have a lot on City 2. And we'll have a discussion about solidarity payments, which is a nerdy passion of ours to talk about. So there's a lot of fun we'll have in the wind down. Tune into the podcast or YouTube for that. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, I think we're going to get deep in the weeds. Thanks, everybody, for listening again on the Big 550 KTRS. We'll talk to you soon. IPA. I was in the mood for an IPA. This is Great Divide. My wife will just like surprise me with something. And this time it was a Great Divide combo pack. It's been good. How about you? I am uh, still on the, the no alcohol until the weekend. I'm giving Dry January one last week. Wow. Uh, we're, we're taking a little trip this weekend and looking forward to that. So being good, having an urban CBD, urban chestnuts. Nice. CBD water like that. We had a question in the chat real quick as we finish up our conversation about uh, the New York Red Bulls and some of our lineups. Elliot Meyer says, I hope we see Nilsson against Red Bulls. I'm a little worried about him missing preseason time with his lack of time on the field with us overall. Two things on that. Um, When he was here in preseason in Florida and here before he left for his green card, he was seeing time consistently with the team. No, I would, I would not have, had I not known anything in the past, I wouldn't have put him in any different scenario than uh, Tim Parker or Josh Yarrow. You know, he was right there. Minutes were great. It's it's how his knee's going to hold up in the regular season later on that I more have a concern about. Hmm. I, it doesn't seem like um, his overall fitness right now is a concern. How he holds up is the big unknown to me because by the end of last season, after he had come back and was fit enough to play, we know he was he was hit or miss on his playing time at the end of last season. Um, he had his knee drained in November. And so that was kind of the big uh, getting over the hump of the regular season, just like Rasmus on with the surgery. He had that happen. He, he came back, he, he showed up in a preseason and camp and he was fit, ready to go. I'm not concerned about him getting up to speed now. I'm concerned with how his knee's going to hold up because we haven't seen that yet while he's been with City. I think we're seeing fans um, have a bit of a bad taste in their mouth in the way, you know, he got kind of maybe benched at the end of the the playoffs there. Um, No one was terribly impressed with him, although I don't know if I actually agree with the negative thoughts on him at the end of the season. But what do you think, Matt? Do you have that bad taste in your mouth? Do you think he's... I mean, we'll do a lineup next week for yeah. CCC, but like, do you think he gets the start in that, or do you think Hebert's been looking good? Do you do you think Hebert gets the start? I, 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 I there's too much time between now and then. It's 12 days out still, and that's a lot of time. Mm. Um, he had been working himself up to 45 before he was out, so those couple of games, uh, if he's able to play against New York, and then. You know, when you come back to St. Louis, we finish it off with that closed door friendly against Louisville City, how he's able to play in that. There, there's a lot that he's going to need to prove. But if I had to go with my gut and give an answer now, I would say no, I would not expect him to start that first game against Houston. Hmm. 
because I don't think Carnell's going to want to push him too far. Just like he mentioned with Rasmus Alm, how he doesn't want to push him. Rasmus pushes himself hard enough, Carnell has said. And I, I would not, they're not in the same progression, so I don't want to get confused there. But I would not expect Carnell to push Nilsson, especially knowing that we need Joachim Nilsson healthy and fit for probably half of those games in the first start of the season. Um, if Nilsson doesn't start against Houston, he'll start against Real Salt Lake in the regular season. And at the end of the day, we have two games in the span of four or five days and then two more games the next week. So that's a lot of games with Nilsson and his injury history. There's a lot of concern about how much you would want him to start all four of those games. I would, oh, yeah. I would never want him to do that at no. this this stage in the game. That's why you have Kyle Hebert. That's why you have Josh Arrow getting so many minutes. Josh Yarrow would be the obvious person to step up right now because he's seeing time with Tim Parker. So I would expect Josh Yarrow and Tim Parker to start that first CONCACAF Champions Cup game, oh. if I had to guess. So and and but that doesn't mean anything bad against Nilsson. It's you're you're still you would still look to start him against the first MLS regular season game. It's an important game. It's the start of the season. Um, I would even say, I mean, it's not an away game, the first one, but the fact that Hebert has played in CONCACAF with uh, Canada that perhaps mm-hmm. Hebert plays that away game. Um, and I obviously I'm pretty high on Hebert. So um, I hadn't even considered that Yarrow might start alongside side Parker. That's really interesting. But yeah, I think Nilsson playing at home uh, makes the most sense. Maybe even in league play where he's used to playing those kind of people. Not that it matters because it's Houston, but um, Oscar says, Oscar Leonardo Rojas Gutierrez says he will be fine. He's saying Nilsson will be fine. He's doing a hard preseason. Is It's just what he needs. I, I actually agree with that as well. And he thinks that Parker yeah. and Nilsson have to be the two center back starters. So I think he's kind of agreeing with you there. Um, well, he, he's, he's not wrong. I just don't think that they need to be the two starters for that first game based on Nilsson's injury history that I I'm more concerned about later in the season, but based on the fact that he's missing a significant chunk of time um, and he doesn't have the same kinds of fitness concerns that I would say Leuven or he, he does have the same fitness concerns. Leuven doesn't. So if you see Leuven return quicker, um, they're two different players, different injury histories, different bodies. And, and that, I mean, that's kind of that. So Nilsson and Parker are still our first choice center back combo, no matter what. And lastly, I mean, I think, Matt, uh, tell me if you don't agree, but I think Matt and I have been pretty strongly in favor of lots of rotation, and that's just one of the many uh, positions that'll be easy to rotate, I think. It is, and I and I think people are seeing some... The fact that we get to see some of these preseason games and that we're seeing success by Kyle Hebert, by Josh Arrow, Tim Parker, and some of the other positions in the midfield, the attacking mids, Thor, Salio, AZ, Indy, that provides a little bit of comfort, I think, for the fan base who they hear the word rotation and they immediately think we're punting games. I can I cannot tell you how many times last season the San Jose Earthquakes game sticks out right in the middle. That lineup's released. You see the number, you see four, five, six non-ideal starters in there, and you immediately think that the game's being punted. We have got to reframe this narrative here of if you see Tomas Ostrak in a game alongside Nukby Thorson. Sam Adeneron and Celio Pompeu as our four up front, that's not punting. That's just rotation because we have to believe these players are strong enough to win games. That's that's the level of depth that we have to believe in with this roster. And so far, so good. I mean, limited preseason action, obviously limited intentions behind preseason, but these are the kind of players that we have to believe in as 
we see them in the starting lineup together. We don't see Klaus. We don't see Indy. We might not see Leuven. We have to believe that we have just as good of a chance as if we do have those types of players. We proved it multiple times last year where AZ, Josh, Josh Yarrow, Akil Watts, Sam Denderon, they came into games. They won games. They proved they can handle MLS. That's what you have to do with an MLS roster when you're competing in four competitions, three of them before the end of April. You have to rotate. You have to rotate often, sometimes early, but you have to be confident in your second, maybe even third choice type of a, a role player. I have it up up above in our notes for the friendlies, but um, I love seeing Sam Dineron in. Uh, I mean, he's confident. He looks really good. He doesn't look like the kind of player that needs a loan, you know, like he did last year. Think about how much, how far he's come in he's the great. last year. So that's um, already that's a step above last year um, with the same player. Uh, that was considered a rotation player last year. So things are changing. I love that. Um, Matt, let's pivot to the UPSL um, team, the the city team, the academy team that played. It was a, a 2-1 win over Columbus Cruise Academy in the UPSL. And, um, yeah, let's talk about that game first. That's the that's the fun one. <laughs> yeah, well, let's talk, we can talk about that game because the, the UPSL season's over. Yeah. Um, for those who don't know or aren't familiar or haven't been following, the UPSL League houses the St. Louis City Academy's U21 team. That's the official title. It's more like the U19s at this point because of the level of players that they sent. It bridges the gap between the U17s and City 2. And St. Louis has been a powerhouse in this league, made it to the national finals this past week. There was a Phil mentioned the two, one win over the Columbus crew in the semifinals on uh, goals by Riley Gibbs with a just crazy angle at the end line when he had the ball and he just moved the ball to an, an unreal angle on the right side. And then Nick Schramm uh, when, <laughs> and this goal in, in stoppage time, I think it was, um, was just, phenomenal and it was a it was a chipped keeper off a high press turnover and so i I made the comparison to um jared strouds last year we saw from klaus against charlotte last year this was a st louis city goal nick schramm chipped the keeper high press turnover they won it and that was the most st louis city type way to win a game off a high press turnover and scoring a goal that was the good news like you said phil Mm -hmm. um from that game that was a last friday and uh, after that, they had to play almost no rest because of the aforementioned storm out in California that I mentioned at the top of the show. They ended up playing a team of, I want to say, U30s maybe. I mean, these were some old veteran players in the Shiriako team from California. I think they were from Indio, right where, I mean, this was their hometown essentially. And they lost in the finals 2-1 to one, with the, the lone goal being by Jackson Delkis formerly of the St. Louis City Academy, newly signed City 2 player, which we'll get to in a minute. But Delkis kind of saved face for St. Louis City, who had gone down early. He, uh, he Another kind of high-press turnover where he played the ball with his body. He beat the keeper, he beat some defenders, and he put the ball in the back. It was a gutsy goal. It, was it, wasn't, awesome. pre- it wasn't pretty, but it was gutsy. Oh, man, I find that uh, very attractive when, I mean, he was bodying people off the ball. He was bodying grown men. I mean, these guys were in their upper 20s, some of them. I think the guy in the, the, uh, after the presser after the game was 30 or something like that. So, um, and it was apparent throughout the game that these guys were grizzled veterans. Um, if they could finish better, they would have scored more goals. I mean, they were creating chance after chance after chance. But I do want to just say for a second here, that the talent of these kids is, is evident. 
their professionalism extremely evident i mean we didn't see anything crazy happening not a lot of fights or anything like that we didn't see them getting down when things were going bad we saw them just go about their business about breaking down the other team pressing them high doing all the things that we see city do just like on the upsl level and they were you know head and shoulders above most of the teams they played i think the columbus game was pretty close um and then the the chiriacos game again it, it was what i just described but I was so proud of them for being so professional throughout the whole game, even though it was clearly going to be a big challenge. And, um, you know, it just reminded me like Louis Swisher is the coach for this team. And it just yes. reminds me of the run that I think Scott Gallagher or they were called St. Louis FC Academy. I think it was the U19s that they went to the Generation Adidas um, Academy. They were like third place in that against all the MLS academies at the time. Yeah. And, uh, it really did. It had a similar vibe to the players in that, like I said, the professionalism, how they went about their business. Um, I loved how that St. Louis team played. Um, it was when MLS academies were starting to pivot away from just barely starting to pivot away from possession soccer and playing pretty soccer over winning and starting to care about winning. Like St. Louis FC clearly just wanted to win and they were pressing, they were working harder than every other team. And so, I don't know, it just feels really similar, that vibe there. And I just wanted to shout out Louis Swisher, um, doing a great job coaching this this team that this, this season. Louis Swisher is the latest St. Louis City coach to lead his team to a final or to a semifinal. And this team has now, this organization now has a history of this. And I think it's, if I have my math correct, every single year, in their existence, the St. Louis City organization has at least sent a team to a semifinal hmm. in one in some kind of competition they've been a part of. This is dating back to 2021, if I be, if I have that right, 2021-22 season. I think it was the first year of the academy. The U16s went to the MLS Next Cup semifinal. They were one of the top four teams. This was this is after what you're describing, Phil, with St. Louis FC organization, but St. Louis City's U16. First year in existence, went to the MLS Next Cup semifinals. We know, obviously, City 2 went to the the MLS Next Pro Cup final in their first year of existence. And then now the UPSL side is going to the finals, the national finals in their first season uh, in the Fall League. This is this is a something to be proud of as an organization. This is something you hang your hat on of cultural success that you are building your foundation on and the fact that you have guys who founded helped found this academy organization it started from the ground up with the academy you're looking at guys like jackson delkis mikey lay those types of guys who were with the u16s that first year they were with this upsl side they were just signed to city two they were seeing right now in february 2024 the realization of all of these players who were founding members of the St. Louis City Academy, they've found success in just about every single level they've been to, are now up to a professional level. And so as we, I think, as we start to look towards City 2 now, that's one of the exciting things that we saw the roster revealed this week. I'm most excited about the fact that we have some OG St. Louis City Academy members now finding their way to the City 2 roster. Luce Fennestiel was on 101 ESPN this morning as we record this, and he made note of this first crop of academy players. This is this warms his heart about how this first group 
is now to this level where they're they're playing for a professional team. They've reached the point of of playing in City Park now as their home. And that is a fan who I was out there at Crevecore Soccer Park, the soccer park complex when the the academy teams first started, seeing those players wear the city crest for the first time and now know that they're going to mm-hmm. step foot in City Park to play with City 2. That's awesome. And kudos to them. Congratulations to those guys for making it that far. We're talking about Jackson Delkis. We're talking about Andrew Kohlberg, Mikey Lay. Carson Locker is, was signed to City 2. We mentioned him earlier. And defender Kai Yeager. These, these guys are professionals now. I, I would assume they might still be on amateur contracts. MLS Next Pro has amateur and professional contracts. But they're playing for a professional team. All the credit in the world to them. And the fact that they're going to now be standing side by side against some of the players that we saw last year, Mikai Joyner, Aaron Hurd, Larson Hackworth, uh, Sam Gomez, we talked about last week, mm-hmm. Anthony Falpel, Michael Venzel, who we talked about, um, and then likely guys from City coming down to them to, to play alongside them. Caden Glover, Tyson Pierce, those types of players. There's a lot to like about this City too, but I just had to focus on that academy piece in the graduation aspect because it's such a fantastic story to me. Yeah, I love bringing back that that picture of the new kids wearing the crest for the first time in front of a crowd and uh, how established it feels now from that those new moments. We weren't sure what was going to happen, but we knew it was going to be a priority now seeing uh, fruits of that labor for sure and not even the full extent. But, you know, looking at, you know, I think we got to touch on just the fact that, I mean, you did touch on it, but the fact that City 2's, goal now a lot of it is going to be bringing these young kids up and getting them ready for the first team younger players playing more often it's going to look like most of the other two teams in mls next pro i'm looking forward to that i really uh, i really am and especially i didn't expect to care about mls next pro players um being good um from other teams but i do care i look at you know the top scorers in the league some of the top um, players that are going off to national team camps for the youth um, competitions. I care about it because I'm seeing really quality Americans getting attention. I think I talked to John Morrissey from USL Tactics about this. I think he's either 28 or 32 players move from MLS Next Pro to USL Championship <laughs> teams this year. That's crazy. Uh, yeah. But it's showing the quality that they're able to take this next step. Um, and and there are a lot of really good players in MLS Next Pro, uh, not the least of which is Jack Lane, right? Um, you know, looking at what oh, these yeah. guys are able to do moving up to MLS at some point, it's going to be fun. Yeah, and the thing to remember about City 2 is we, we, should, we shouldn't just reset expectations of, of all those accolades that I mentioned of City 2 going to the finals in their first year of the academy teams. If you remember last year how City 2, their season progressed – it was kind of a stop and start for about half the season yeah. as they were finding their new identity because this was really the pivot. This was a pivot last year when you're pivoting from being the top team in the organization to now tasked with developing talent, but you still have a little mix of some of those players left over from the first year. How do you manage them and what's your identity going to be? And then as the season progressed, we saw we saw guys like AZ Jackson, Akil Watts spend less time with City 2 and we saw a better identity as Caden Glover, Faisal Batash, uh, John Klein. Those guys were taking they were, they were taking the bull by the horns and they were running with it. And we saw a lot of that city identity that we're used to. We saw 
the press. We saw a lot of organizational organization between the lines. We saw a lot of composure shown on the defensive end. And I thought the City 2 side towards the end of the season was so markedly different from the beginning of the season. And that's the team that I look for from this year. The roster is going to be overhauled and overturned because we only brought back less than a handful of players. But if you think about the players that we've added, these these City Academy players, first among them, they know the system. They know what's expected of them. It's just against a higher caliber opponent, which circles back to the conversation about losing to this mid-20s, upper-20s team in the Shiriako side. That was the gut check, wake-up call. Hey, here's what may be lying ahead of you as far as the caliber of your opponent. You're going to be playing a higher caliber opponent regularly in MLS Next Pro, whether it's your own age and just a higher level or some older than you, and this is what it's going to be like. So that was a nice little welcome to adulthood, so to speak, for that team from what these, a lot of these guys are going to have going into City 2. But then you also bring in just a host of scouted talent. Some of these players that they announced, they announced the signings prior to the overall roster, and they were they were announced as, we're talking MLS homegrowns, previously drafted players, to former SIUE player. There's a lot of different clear intention behind the scouting that was done. They looked into other organizations, and they saw homegrowns, players who were either, maybe some of them are actually um, still protected by MLS sides, and so it's not mm-hmm. possible for them to go up to city because other teams hold their MLS rights. But we now have them to play for us. And this was the group that was announced the other day. Ryan Betcher, uh, Cam, Cam Siley, Sam Gomez, those types who were a clear intention from Bobby Murphy, returning City 2 head coach, and Lutz in who they wanted to bring in and maybe who they see potential in in the future. There's a lot of moving pieces in some of these priorities because not everybody from City 2 is going to move up. I mentioned earlier today, Phil, that the average age of, a Sa- of St. Louis City, 24.1 years of age. Just by necessity, you're not going to be able to move up a majority, anywhere near a majority of this group. So you have to have some guys who you're confident in, who are experienced, who are maybe some veterans of this league. And I think that's what this roster has holistically. Completely agree. I'm um, looking forward to those some of the new faces they brought in that aren't from the academy, that aren't like super draft signings and, and stuff like that. Um, the, one, the, the ones that I have no idea where they came from just by looking at their name. Those are the ones like I think about Philadelphia Union has been big on that. They'll like scout academies in foreign countries and just bring them in uh, to the two team and uh, give them a shot. And a lot of good players. Most of them are, are in the USL right now, actually, and are stars in the USL, to be fair. But, um, you know, it's it's a good you, you got to look all over the globe. It's it's the world sport. So that's a fun one. Um, quick one. Chris Gebhardt asks Matt um, as a dad. Are you excited about City focusing on the kids in the City 2 games this year? I noticed the, what is it, the supporters camp? Is that what it's called? Supporter camp. They're going to get to play drums. They're going to do chants. They're going to open up the East End, if I read that correctly. That's really exciting to me. They saw the most exciting things that fans did last year, bringing families, bringing kids, being able to just come and, and experience a more laid back environment, and they are amping it up. And so credit to Matt Seebeck's team, for the overall experience that fans are going to get now with City 2. It's taking kind of what we always wanted City 2 to be, the family-friendly, accessible tickets that are $13 per game, uh, group tickets for gearing towards local youth groups and schools going for $10 of tickets, season ticket packages, a family of four for $400 for the whole season, 
and you get into City Park for the entire season. Those are fantastic things. The supporter camp. I mean, you're introducing now, I think Seaback or uh, Peter Wood said, the next generation of City fans. And that's what this is. Kids banging drums, waving flags in the supporter section. I have no doubt they're going to have Fleur de Noise over there kind of as their coaches and their mentors, getting them involved and excited because that's how you grow the fan base. You can't just have a good product on the field to excite a 6 to 11-year-old. You need to have activities that are fun to get them into the overall environment. I know having a seven-year-old that the attention span's not there. Right. As much as, as much as she loves soccer and she likes to play it, watching it, the attention span's not there. But if you introduce a place you can go bang drums, wave flags, just move about and do these things, and you fall in love with the atmosphere at a City 2 game as much as you do the hype and environment that you have for City games, getting artsy with some of these face painters in the concourse, Kid PA announcers, that's awesome. <laughs> that is cool. And then the fact that the fact that they're opening up at the end of each match, fans will have the opportunity to greet players and get autographs. This is this is amping it up to an eleven as far as what they're doing to excite kids and get them geared up for this level that that is their perfect entrance to city. Yeah. I- I'm a, I'm a father of three boys and my middle child is just what you mentioned there, Matt. He's, he's eight years old and he cannot focus for the life of him. He gets so excited about going to these games and then he gets there halfway through. He's like, dad, can we go home? I'm like, no dude, we're here for the full game. Um, and he loves the before he loves the after he loves the food. Um, this is just going to make it easier on parents. I am in love with it and I'm so thankful for it. You know, I look at the senior team game as like, Yeah, I'll bring my kids a couple times, but that's for me. Like, this is my wife and I usually go. We have our time. We have our our traditions. We hang out. We're alone. We get a babysitter. It's awesome. Um, But I'll bring the boys to a few of those. The City 2 games, it's cheaper. All out. Yeah, like, it's just we're there to have a good time. We don't worry about anything else. Um, If we have to leave early, like, it's okay. Like, no big deal. Um, But, you know, and it's just so much fun. And it feels more like that. USL uh, atmosphere too that I of course will never stop uh, missing and loving so um, I love those City 2 games and as a dad they're really nailing it Uh, thanks so much for doing that whoever's idea that was that's great no doubt let's move let's move to the big one Matt and then if we have time we'll do more but I have a feeling we won't um, so maybe we do a video on the side about those loanies and updates but we got to talk yeah, about the solidarity. Yeah, we'll, we'll get stuff. more into the we'll get more into updates on the Lonies during the regular season when they have competitive matches because Isak Jensen, his team hasn't started to play competitively yeah, yet. He's, he's still starting preseason. Same with Miguel Perez; he started the last preseason game for the Birmingham Legion. But it's we'll have more updates for them as the season progresses. Keeping an eye on them. Absolutely, um, you, Matt. You better tell the news on this one because I think I'll get some details wrong. Let's start with that, and we'll talk about it. Solidarity payments have been introduced to the MLS ecosystem officially. This week, MLS announced that they are, for the first time, introducing an MLS Next development grant program. It's an initiative to recognize the significant contributions of MLS Next elite academies, which are non-MLS academy programs that compete in MLS Next, in the professional player pathway by investing in those youth development ecosystems. It boils down to the fact that a non-MLS-affiliated academy that competes in MLS Next can develop a player, player plays for them for a period of time, and then that player eventually goes on to sign a homegrown contract with an MLS side. The example, because it is one of the examples that is grandfathered into this, is Caden Glover. Hmm. Caden Glover and Tyson Pierce both played for St. Louis Scott Gallagher, 
And because they spent time with St. Louis Scott Gallagher, which is a MLS Next Elite Academy from the U13s up to the U19s, they will receive some of these payments through this development grant, which is a solidarity payment for the development of two players who signed homegrown contracts with St. Louis City. This isn't just for St. Louis City, though. So I, I saw some some jokes about, oh, St. Louis Scott Gallagher really needs the money. That's not what this is really about, because holistically, this is about rewarding whatever type of academy develops a player that eventually an MLS team is able to take advantage of that development. This is a global standard, yeah. and in fact is in FIFA bylaws that solidarity payments are required to be paid to teams. This is up until now something that MLS has more or less skirted, similar to the pro-rel requirements in some of those FIFA bylaws. They have exceptions to them. And don't ask me why they have exceptions. I think it goes back to the fact that MLS needed to be created in the first place. But today in 2024, we finally have the first concrete, discrete way that MLS is rewarding some of these clubs. Now, Phil, before I get into your massive take on this, the one thing I do want to point out is that this is a fantastic step and it is a necessary step in the right direction. But don't think for a second that MLS is doing this out of the goodness of their heart. In order to be eligible for this, you have to compete in MLS Next. You have to be an MLS Next Elite Academy. If St. Louis Scott Gallagher decided they wanted to pull out of MLS Next and go compete in the USL Academy, they would no longer be eligible to receive these development grants. So MLS is rewarding non-MLS academies for being in MLS by creating these solidarity payments. Yeah, and I guess I'm just going to kind of recover the the thread I posted on uh, on Twitter today because I think you know this is mostly good. I would say this is like Matt, you laid it out perfectly that this is the global standard. It's part of what makes the game the beautiful game because you know it's it's something it's like we love getting really quality players and we thank you for that and we give you money and money talks right it's really helpful for someone like scott gallagher who yes it's paid to play they probably have enough money but do they want to keep losing their best players to mls right do like what is their motivation to bring these players up and if they make them good enough they just lose them every single time with no nothing back in their hands and so this just puts everyone on the same path it makes everybody work together in this system it's mutually beneficial now that st louis scott gallagher lou fuse is in this system as well i'm not missing anybody it's just those two right that are in mls mls next i believe so yes in the st louis area so now they get money every time they send a player uh, that ends up getting a homegrown contract. That's massive. That's huge. It's a beautiful system. It's a very capitalistic system that I don't find evil, right? Uh, so that's also pretty cool um, that, yeah, again, money talks, and it's just, like, working out for the best. And, and I will say, too, like, it's been even, like, rumblings in the area when, when City first came to town, like, it was – it was hard to watch St. Louis Scott Gallagher get absolutely gutted and get nothing for it. And I think I even mentioned it on the podcast, like they deserve something, right? Maybe not because they're paid to play. The argument could be they've received their reward in full. They, they charged the players and they made them good. So they got what they needed. The players got what they needed. They moved on to something better. But 
it was hard to watch them get gutted with with nothing back for it and um I think it was a little bit weird, like the politics of soccer and, and how it was working for a while. And it did definitely get better. It feels like when, when Dale Schilly moved up to the Academy role with city, it seemed like the relationship became more understanding there. And maybe they just saw this on the horizon and knew it wouldn't be a problem eventually. Um, but anyway, I, it's just nice that everything is smoothed out and it's all working for the better of the player in the end and the better of the clubs uh, respectively. Um, so those were the good sides. I mean, do you want to talk about like kind of more about the evil side there, Matt, before, or do you want to kind of add on to the good side of that? I mean, it, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Like I think we broke it down pretty clearly. Um, the, the, it's, it's not necessarily an evil side to me. It's just a, a, a reminder that they're not doing this out of the goodness of their heart necessarily. Yeah. It's, it is, it's rewarding teams. And I think it's, it's a, it's a, if you look at it from a larger perspective outside of just MLS Next, um, I look at this as a recruitment tool for non-MLS organizations, just like we're seeing in MLS Next Pro. And it's, it's from the top down, you have MLS, and they're about to be 30 teams. And what they view as we're holding firm, there is a massive, mark, there's a massive capital requirement to enter that league. But they also have created this vertical structure of the, the player pipeline, the pathway to pro that starts with potentially U13s all the way up through MLS. And yes, there is, there's a pyramid for each team in that, where you start with MLS, you have MLS Next Pro, and then you go down to all of your academy teams. But beyond MLS, what we're seeing is MLS as an organization is doing whatever they can and need to do to convince unaffiliated organizations to join their cause. How many teams so far have we seen in MLS Next Pro, both this year and in the coming years, unaffiliated to MLS be recruited to come in? I know Chattanooga is in, Mm -hmm. Jacksonville, Cleveland's going to have a team, Baltimore's rumored for a team. All of these teams, I think there's one in the Bay Area now, or that will be, but these are Division Three teams that MLS convinced to come play in their ecosystem versus USL championship or league one. And now we're seeing the same thing for MLS next is the dark side of this is that it is a recruiting tool to convince organizations to come to MLS. Now the flip side of that dark side is, is that a problem? Is that really that bad? I mean, inherently you could say MLS is the boogeyman and the big bad evil corporation, but if you're an unaffiliated Academy and you're deciding between USL and MLS or some other unaffiliated organization, ECNL, perhaps, what what are you looking at? You're looking at what's going to benefit you the most monetarily, visibility, allow you to recruit your own players to say, hey, you can play against players and teams in the top divisions to have that those eyes on you. I mean, there's a lot of benefits to going into the MLS ecosystem if you're an unaffiliated academy, and this is now another notch in that belt. And eventually I could easily see a scenario where this just becomes so big that it starts to engulf everything. And yeah, there could be a scenario in the future where U.S. soccer is MLS. And then MLS has to start to think about how they're going to manage that kind of structure if they get so big, both at the top and at the bottom with these academies. Yeah, and and there's a point to be made 
that if if the if this keeps going um, and USL might see that they feel it's uh, no longer necessary to have their own academy system, which they started maybe three four years ago. Uh, oh, more than that now, four or five. Um, that if they just excuse me join MLS Next, then they'll be part of that um, that system. Um, and it makes sense. And, and then maybe we just streamline the entire pyramid, even though it wasn't necessarily done cooperatively. It's more of a coercion, you know, through coercion, yeah. our pyramid has been united, which would be a very, very uh, MLS way to do things in, in some ways, a very American way to do things. So um, I, I, I could see that happening. And, and honestly, as gross as it feels, it might even be the best thing for United States soccer if that was to happen in the future. A lot of people talk about USL being bought by MLS, and I could see that being the best thing for United States soccer going forward. But just to lean into the worst part of this, in my my um, opinion, is, is that it, it just like the beautiful part of solidarity payments is that it doesn't matter who you are. You say thank you for the player. You send the money down and say, please, continue what you're doing. You're doing good work. I mean, that could be, in a foreign country, that could be your greatest rival's academy if that player ended up coming to your team. Um, you may be sending money to your rival's academy and helping your rival out. And, you know, it's not like Arsenal's going to say, even though they bought a Chelsea academy player, they're not saying, well, we will pay solidarity payments only to Arsenal players um, or only to players that aren't our rivals in, in Chelsea. That's not how it works in the world game. And that's right. like part of what makes it so beautiful, right, in the world game. In the United States, it's disgusting. It's gross. It's fake solidarity because solidarity means you're in line with everyone doing this same thing you are, right? And so it's not solidarity. And the last thing I'll say is it just reeks of the move that MLS just tried to do with the Open Cup because all they're thinking about is themselves. Not just that, they're trying to hurt other leagues mm. that are, yes, other leagues are benefiting from them in small ways, but there's no reason to lash out and destroy wonderful soccer traditions just because it doesn't match up with your financial plan your financial future and it, it kills me that that's how mls constantly every move they make every year there's something that makes me want to throw up it's terrible because i'm in love with the beautiful game i'm in love with the way soccer works i'm in love with especially um the way the germans work the you know the 50 plus one thing beautiful and it's being Try, they're trying to destroy it over there too, but the fact that German fans show up in droves to you know throw massive fits over people trying to cheat the system, they care about the right things over there. And MLS is the you know the far end of the opposite of that, in my opinion. And so it just feels gross when they do things to hurt leagues like the USL, even the UPSL, where some of their academies are playing and improving, like City. Um, this doesn't help them at all. And it's purposefully made to hurt them. Um, and, and, and it hurts me. Um, but I, that's the bad. Again, I think, you know, I start to think about this too much. And I think it's like a 20, 25, 30% problem um, that might end up being worked out 
through evil or good ways in the end. But, you know, it is something that I wish they just chilled the F out about. I think the ultimate problem with everything you described is how late in the how late in the game MLS started and what they had to work up against. And they have to build themselves as a league. They have to survive. They had to survive as a league and they have to work to grow soccer in the U.S. from a capitalistic basis. Mm -hmm. And that's that's ultimately where the root of all the evil lies is capitalism. But that's the society that we live in. That's how that's how the beautiful game is able to grow in the U.S. We've done shows. How many how many shows have we done over the years that have talked about the history of soccer in the U.S. before MLS? Mm -hmm. We love it in St. Louis from a fact of we have produced so many players, but there's a lot of ugliness when it comes to teams that have had to fold due to financial insolvency and leagues that have had to fold. Every single one of the outdoor leagues that have had to fold prior to MLS because of financial insolvency. Teams couldn't they couldn't survive. They didn't have guardrails. They didn't have a salary cap. They didn't have structures in place that would enable them to grow consistently and continuously. Eventually, they all failed. And this is a byproduct of that, right? The fight to survive, the rewarding those to be in your ecosystem. 25 to 30 years later, we're seeing, we're seeing glimpses of things that in other countries are so beautiful, pure, and altruistic because when those when those mechanisms when those societal structures were created for the beautiful game societies were different and you didn't have the big globalistic capitalism occurring you didn't have everything as if you didn't have big money behind this you couldn't survive yes money has played a factor in clubs since the beginning of time but never to the extent of mls starting in 1996 and it is this way or you fold as soccer has in the U.S. It also part, partly comes from the fact that soccer isn't as grained in American culture as it is yeah, elsewhere. Absolutely. I mean, and, and that's an unfortunate reality that we have to face as soccer diehard fans in America. But whenever we compare ourselves to I wish it would be like it is in Germany, I wish it would be like it is in England where teams can fight tooth and nail on the field but they respect each other and their development of players off the field. I don't know that we'll ever have that in America just because of the path that it took to get to even a a league like MLS able to survive and thrive for almost 30 years. It had to be a little bit of those capitalistic backroom natures, the exclusionary tactics to grow yourself because, I mean, part of it is, let's be honest, U.S. soccer either didn't choose to, wasn't able to, or saw this as their only path hmm. to have a sustainable first division league. Yeah, I, I think very well, points well made there, Matt. And, and, and I think people like me can sound like we're talking out of two sides of our mouths in that we do want this league to be bigger. We maybe want people to spend more money, uh, but they're beholden to, you know, this Apple deal it feels doesn't it feel like a massive corporation having to answer to a board like they have all the extra games they fit in the silly playoff format like that wasn't because they thought it was the best way to do it that's for them to get the paycheck they needed right and so and, and but but that paycheck is massive in the growth of this league i think i just saw wasn't that a one billion dollar deal matt or or something close to it 
And like Premier League's at one point seven or one point eight billion dollars, and their viewership's going down a little bit. MLS is on the rise. And it was just talking about you know the gap is massive between the two leagues, but it's shrinking a little bit. It's a it's a two point five billion dollar deal over ten years. If what MLS has, but oh, okay, pardon me. I, I also think I also think part of that is. The reason that, like you, you mentioned that, and this is kind of a byproduct of the conversation about the academies, MLS is so beholden to what Apple has now with all this money. Other leagues would be in the exact same scenario that MLS is. The Premier League would would be in the exact same scenario, beholden to their their media rights deals if they wanted to do things, except for. They have these underlying structures that exist in the FA <laughs> and in all these governing bodies yeah. that say, no, we, we have survived and thrived and we have f- fundamental foundational roots that we, are, we cannot move from. We're, our principles of we're not introducing playoffs. That's not football in England. <laughs> we're not introducing a, a multiple match you know, structure here going on. We're not introducing... A, another tournament we're not introducing the super league like that's the exact thing yeah the the whole thing about the super league is is such a good analogy that we just have to deal with at, at this point in time and i'm not i'm not trying to be an apologist for how mls has grown but in america growing soccer has been a failing venture up until 1996 mm-hmm. and and it's almost you have to take the evil with you have to take the good with the bad if you want it to grow into something that you believe ultimately can be good under likely different leadership than what we have now. Yeah, take the good with the bad to some extent, but I do think the f- one of the few things maybe keeping MLS somewhat honest are the fans. Yes. I, I, because I think the massive pushback about the Open Cup was mostly driven by fans, and I think some media finally did start catching on and agreeing with the fans, and they felt comfortable enough to say some things, media that didn't work for MLS, to be exact. And um, so, like, I do think the fans are a big part of that. And I, th- I, I say this a lot, but I truly think the USL might be one of the few capitalistic groups that are pushing MLS to be to do it right, to be more like the world game, because the USL is constantly pushing to try, you know, they're going to change their schedule for better or for worse. We'll see how that goes. They're mm-hmm. trying for Pro-Rel, so they say, God, I hope it happens before any buyout might happen between MLS <laughs> and USL because it needs to be instilled. We need to build some kind of structure um, capitalistically that is more like the world game, and I think the USL is the only one doing that, um, strongly at least, uh, successfully. But I, again, like us as fans... We have to push. We have to keep – our podcast is constantly trying to f- have them fix the stupid roster rules, trying to open <laughs> things up, let them spend money. Like, we want this game to be moved forward in a responsible way. We want the big money, but we also want uh, the beautiful game. And, um, you know, it, I think it's our job to do that. And thank goodness the FA, you know, USS, U.S. Soccer stood up to them in the Open Cup. Hopefully they get stronger and our, you know, our voting and pushing our local voters in Missouri uh, to mm-hmm. vote in a way that we think is good and responsible. These are things we need to start considering going forward when those when those votes happen. Yeah, and 
I, I think the separation of USSF and MLS is for the better. You know, the garbage yes. still on the board, but the MLS is marketing arm some, no longer does marketing for USS, US soccer, and that's good. You know, there shouldn't be inter, intermingling between those kinds of entities as they exist. It should be uh, more of a governing equally. Um, I am interested to see if USL actually follows through with some of these more altruistic ideas of shifting the schedules and introducing ProRel they've been talked about for quite a while mm-hmm. and i i and it's internal pro rel obviously yeah but you know until i see it actually happen i am one of the more skeptical people that they'll actually be able to make it work because half of the country is freezing cold during the times they want to play yeah. i i don't know i'm always skeptical about trying to go to a fall spring season in this part of the world um and, and USL still struggles with some of their teams staying afloat. Not every not every team returns every single year, too. So there's yeah. there's pieces to that puzzle that MLS hasn't has figured out that USL is still struggling with. Some of it does go back to US soccer in they need to make sure that their leagues stay afloat in whatever way possible. Um, but I, I don't know. I'll I'll just wrap up my thoughts going back to the academy thing. And I, I do believe that it is a good move forward. Like we have a lot of looking at the good, looking at the bad, and we we go deep into a lot of both sides. But ultimately going from where they were to where they are now with providing discrete uh, measurements, because they provided three measurements on how a team can be eligible, at least they're doing that. They're being prescriptive about it, and and that's a good first step. And ultimately for a league that is less than 30 years old, we're still seeing first steps in right directions in a lot of ways. And and we're still in as much as it feels like finally St. Louis has a team in MLS. This is a team this is a league that's less than 30 years old. Yeah. They're still in their infancy in the global landscape of this. So they're still figuring out how they can introduce some of these more regular things that other parts of the world have that MLS because of how they started and what their underlying structure is they're shifting to this and and that's ultimately good in my eyes yeah i i think the the best outcome not best but a good outcome would be grow 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 and then once you're done expanding if that day ever comes like then you start moving toward the world game then we can bring someone else in to you know move from the garber era to maybe the beautiful game era. I would love to see an MLS CEO really, really take the reins and, and push uh, the league in that direction. And they'd be a hero and Garber would be like the bad guy, but he would, you know, he played his role. Right. And perhaps he, uh, there's a future where he played it so perfectly that MLS is one of the top five leagues in the, in the world It's possible guys. It's possible. And we would thank him if that were to happen in the future. That's so. right. Good thoughts, Matt. Good, good, good thoughts all around. Um, thank you for joining us in the chat. We got to wrap it up from here. Um, that was a really fun conversation. That's kind of the stuff I live for, and I expect this debate to go on and on and on. Uh, and also, I just want to thank the Luligans because we were talking about the fans doing what's right, and like I just don't think the Luligans have like made a misstep in this entire city era like when that open cup thing happened they were on board from the beginning and i felt like oh, they yeah. said the right thing every single time they've got the experience um and i think they just naturally knew kind of what to do in that situation so that was really cool to see 
coming up from the lower leagues, uh, existing through all those failed uh, leagues that they have. I mean, there's a there's a grassroots appreciation that that group will never lose. That's it, guys. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.